Right. How are we? Good, good, good. Hey, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I'm loving uh, being at the men's retreat this weekend and having like a lot of tenor singing. And then I come in here as a little more alto soprano today. All right, I like it. Uh, so, I mean, it has been good. Uh, hey, it was like an awesome time. Uh, I was super encouraged. Uh, man, the Lord did some like redemptive things even in my own heart. Uh, and so I'm stoked for you ladies next weekend. I think it's going to be awesome. Y'all can have a great time. But uh, it was good. And it is also good to be back. Uh, I didn't want to leave. And then I came here this morning. And I was like, hey, I get to double dip. Like I'm feeling this. All right. So uh, it is good to be here. I also enjoy uh, being at home with my wife because she does not snore nor stink. So uh, <laughs> praise God for that. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the ushers are coming forward. You can actually raise your hand, uh, and they would love to give you one. If you do not own a Bible, would you please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. You can also follow along on your phone. All the instructions for that are up here on the screen, and so you can follow along that way. But we say this every week. We mean it. We want your eyes on the Word. I know that the Lord speaks to us sometimes through the Word and not through what uh, the person is saying that's helping helping exposit the word. And so I want your eyes to see the scriptures. Sometimes the Holy Spirit starts to illuminate the text. And I like to say that the word is a lot like Braille. Like sometimes it lifts off the page. You can almost feel it in a way. And so sometimes that's through the sermon. Sometimes that's through God opening up something else in your own eyes. And so we want your eyes on the word because we believe that God still speaks in many ways. And this is the predominant one. So uh, we are on our second to last week in our Unsung Hero series. Uh, and and just looking at, oh, hey, y'all like it? That's awesome. All right, so uh, we are uh, looking at, hey, what does it look like uh, to realize that we are, in a lot of ways, called into the story of God and that we do not have to be like Moses or the Apostle Paul or Elijah to make an impact in the kingdom at large, that in reality, God is calling all of us to make an impact. And, and oftentimes, we actually see the people that make the deepest impact in the kingdom are actually those who are not really sung about. They're the names that we don't really know as much. They're unsung heroes. That's true even in our own church, right? The people that are loving on us, that are serving us, a lot of us don't know, like Linda this morning, as she disciples my kids and loves on my kids. Like, she is serving me, and she is serving y'all as she pours into these uh, children week in and week out. And there are all sorts of us that are coming together to represent the kingdom of God at large. And so God is calling us to be active in the story of God, whether we have a known name or an unknown name, there are no unknown names with our God, for he knows all of us. And so that's really what the heart of this has been at large. And today we're actually going to study three unsung heroes, and the sermon's still going to be normal length, all right? And the church said amen at that, all right? Unless y'all want it to go long, I can let it go long, all right? But uh, y'all like, that's not funny. Okay, so uh, we want to look at uh, two different aspects uh, really around the same story. We're looking at two different things in it, and one of the things that I want to look at is, hey, who does the gospel interact with? Who is it the gospel interacts with? And the second question I want us to answer is, and how does the church form? 
Our unsung heroes actually show us this really, really well. And in their showing us this, they're actually inviting us into the story of God at large and also inviting us to participate in the redemption of God by forming the church, both this church as well and other churches that may come out of this. And so because all of us are called to be heroes and by our God of the Bible, if we understand these two things, then we can understand how we get to participate in that in a lot of ways. And I want you to know that even as we go into the text this morning, I want you to realize that, man, in the culture we're about to study, the gospel and who it interacted with was just as difficult for that culture to receive, if not more difficult than even our culture. I know that sometimes we can feel like, ah, gosh, like we kind of feel like fish out of the water in some ways when we start talking about sin or salvation or our need for a savior or Jesus or worship or church, or it can feel uh, displaced at times in our culture, but what we are about to read is even that much more displaced. For where we're at in Acts 16 is in Acts chapter 15, there was something called the Jerusalem Council, and all the elders of the church at the time came together and they said, hey, you know what we're really realizing? We're realizing that the Gentiles are also to be brought into this. This isn't just a Jewish religion. This is actually what God has been trying to do from the creation of the world to bring his glory to humanity. This is the way that he's going to do it. It has been unveiled revealed to us, and that this is for everyone. So what we're about to study is actually the first example of what it looked like for that unveiling of God, for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom at large. And what we see is actually a very, very, very beautiful story. Luke, who's the author of Acts, he wrote this in really intentional ways. He's writing about the church of Philippi. Now, we have a book in our Bible called Philippians. That's what it's from. And we know that at Philippi, though they had never received the gospel, there were all these conversions that were happening. People were switching from their idol worship to worship the God of Israel, the the true God, the God of the world. And we know that there were all these people that were coming to faith because we have a whole book written to a whole church, right? But we also see all these names in Philippians. But none of those names show up here. Luke chose three names to show us about, and I think that Luke did that with wild intentionality to answer those two questions for us for lots of people converted, but Luke wants us to see these three stories in particular because he wants us to see the gospel in a lot of ways. He's trying to tell us something, and so that's where we're going to be, Luke chapter, uh, or Luke, Acts chapter 16. Uh, We're going to pick it right up in verse 13. So it says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to uh, the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the first of our unsung heroes is one we're probably more familiar with if you know the Bible. That's Lydia. Uh, In fact, the church of Philippians likely met in Lydia's house, and so she served to be a hero in multiple ways, one of them through her hospitality and generosity. But we see several things about Lydia here. First of all, we see that she was a woman, okay? We'll do more on that in a second. But secondly, she was rich. We know this because she was selling purple dye, which was hard to come by at that time, so she was slaying in that rich fabric, right? She wasn't selling no old navy jeans. She was selling like that Dolce & Gabbana jeans, right? Them Nick Brandt jeans, okay? And so, 
Uh, thirdly, right, she was religious, okay? Uh, Paul met her on a church day, Sabbath, the day of Sabbath, around a prayer gathering with a bunch of other women. You can't get more religious than that, right? Uh, it says that she was a worshiper of God. What that meant was that she was a Gentile, but that she was actually seeking the God of Israel. She was trying to figure out who this Yahweh was and may have even been a convert to Judaism and was really trying to seek this God in a lot of ways. So she was trying to follow the Old Testament. And so maybe she either heard or didn't believe in Jesus or she had never even heard of Jesus yet, but she was really trying to seek God, right? So she was following God. She just didn't know the way to be saved. She didn't know the way in which you uh, really accept experience God, where you enter into that intimacy with God. She was still practicing these things, but she was really seeking after the Lord. Lydia was probably a really good person, a morally upright person, right? She was probably really curious about God, hence her being there on the Sabbath day, and yet she still needed the gospel. Just because she was religious doesn't mean that she was actually saved or a Christian, and just because we are religious or try to be good people doesn't mean that we don't need the gospel either. We need the gospel, all of us. And so Lydia is needing the gospel, right? And Lydia is probably one of the ones that is morally upright. She's working to uh, please God by her work. She's a really, really good person. But what probably is twisted in Lydia's mind is really how you enter into the intimacy with God. For she likely, like most of the people in this culture at this time, believed that if you changed your external uh, outcomes, if you changed your actions and your behaviors, then that made you right with God. You were changed from the outside in, is what most people would believe. But gospel people believe that's not true. We are changed from the inside out. That we believe in God, and as he interacts with our hearts, he begins to change who we are, and he shifts us from being people who were once trying to appease God or prove our way to God or work our way to God, he makes us realize that is impossible, but he worked his way to us. And if we believe in him, then we can have that intimacy. We can have that relationship. And so she had a God who likely made her feel good because she followed the rules and she was rich, which in that culture she would have believed was a direct blessing for her following the rules. So she's likely a morally upright person. This is true of a lot of religious people today, right? You may know them, you may have grown up in one of those types of families where there was a lot of religion. There may not have been this intimacy, this experience, this relationship with God, but maybe there was a lot of moral uprightness. Maybe you even went to the Sabbath day church prayer gathering all the time, both on Sundays and Wednesday nights and revival weekends. Maybe that was your upbringing, right? But we realized that, man, Lydia had a God that really was useful to her in a lot of ways. He was practical. He was a God that if she did the right thing, she would be blessed, which is what most people in that culture would have thought. But this day, she received a God that was more than useful to her. She received a God that was beautiful to her. She began to realize that there was something different about this God. We also know that Lydia was a leader. How do we know this? Well, it says that she's the one that baptized her household that she brought the gospel into her household. So she was the leader of her house. Either the guy wasn't there or maybe he was just a little bit more passive or maybe she was just an awesome leader, right? And then it says that uh, uh, she uh, told them, Paul and Silas, that they need to stay with her. And they were like, no, we cool, we're about to leave. And she was like, I wasn't asking, I was telling you to stay. 
That's literally that word urge and the word prevailed. Uh, it could mean uh, in the Greek overpowered, like demanded, like, no, you're going to stay with me, right? So Lydia is this really, really strong leader, which is likely how she's leading all these different networks around her. A strong woman, she's a, an eight on the Enneagram, right? Any Enneagram lovers, right? She's like the, the, the strong black granny, right? Or even if you're a 34-year-old man, if she gives you that eye look, you're done, right? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, whatever you say, right? She's just a strong woman, okay? And so how did the gospel come to her, though? Because here's her profile, but what was it that began to change her heart in a lot of ways? Well, it came through a rational discourse. It came through logic and reason. Uh, she began to understand who the Messiah was as Paul likely unveiled the Old Testament to her and showed her all of the Old Testament is pointing us to this one man and his name was Jesus and he came, right? Paul was probably showing her how she is to come to know the Lord and so she has a rational conversion. Her head is stimulated with God and who he is. She knows these things about God but she's never met with the God in reality. God is useful but Paul says, no, no, no. God is beautiful. Here's the Messiah. He has actually fulfilled all of what you've been hoping for, come to Jesus, and she did, right? So she's partly a hero because she shows us the gospel can interact in an intellectual and in a rational way, which is really good for some of us in here to hear today, right? Maybe you are the architect or the engineer or just the intellectually stimulated person who you love the Lord your God with all of your mind, right? You see others love them with their heart or their hands, their actions, their soul, but you love them with your mind. And that's awesome because the gospel does interact with us in that way. The gospel is for the intellectually uh, 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 high people, right? They are for uh, the religious people even is the second thing we see in Lydia. And so we see this uh, beautiful story of how the gospel interacts with this woman in these profound ways right? But she's one of three heroes that Luke highlights. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off, and, uh, off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." The second hero we actually see is the slave girl. Why? Well, we see many differences between this girl in Philippi and Lydia. First of all, she's a girl, so she's likely a lot younger than Lydia would have been at that time. She's the opposite of Lydia in that way. She's also the opposite in that she wasn't rich. She was actually poor, for she was a slave, right? She didn't run her own business like Lydia. She was run by a business and was a business in and of herself. She was deeply poor, 
in fact, oppressed in these deep ways, sociologically, right? She was oppressed. She wasn't a leader. She was a slave, both to men and to demons, it says. If you were with us in the Ephesian series, you remember our talk on spiritual warfare. And man, this is a a, a girl who is physically, literally a slave to the demonic uh, nature. She is oppressed. She's the opposite of religious. She's demon-possessed, right? You can't get much more opposite than that, right? And so, ironically, she's actually the one who probably knew the most about God out of our three people, for she is proclaiming the right things, but she's also the one that is most hurt and doesn't believe this in a way. She uh, is the one that is in the most pain. And so how does the gospel come and interact with this girl? Well, it's through this internal uh, encounter, something that's deep or something that's extremely spiritual. She had a transcendent conversion, if you will, probably a very emotional conversion in a lot of ways. You even see her owners acting very emotionally to her conversion, for they get uh, extremely angry because now their, their prophet is gone and they begin to beat Paul. So there's all this emotion around it, but you got to believe that there was this oppression and as she got released in this wild way, this, this transcendent way, this way that goes beyond the physical or what we can see. This is wild. This is emotional. This is crazy. This is out there, right? And this is how she comes to know the Lord. And here's the interesting thing about what the gospel did in this little girl's life. When she was liberated, friends, she wasn't just liberated spiritually or personally, but her liberation affected things socially as well. You following that? Yeah? Yeah, you following that? All right, thank you. All right. The gospel changed her social status. Right? I, I want you to get this. Do you feel where I'm going with this? Like, we see this because they lost her. She was no longer their slave. Like, they lost her as property. They could no longer do the oppressive things that they wanted to do because the gospel is not just a personal experience, but where the gospel actually takes root and takes place, it begins to change the culture and the climate around us. And so now the oppressive or the negative things that are happening, the gospel comes in and begins to unravel those things. And so the gospel is not just a way that we as individuals become right with God, but it's also a way that it begins to redeem all All of the brokenness around us, where the gospel is truly taking place, there is a literal social change around us. This is what we see here in this girl as the gospel comes out in a lot of ways. The gospel works complete liberation. There's complete freedom, not just partial freedom, but full freedom. And even where that freedom isn't fully felt, we know that one day Christ will make right all things and all that is wrong will be made new and we will be fully liberated. But we see the gospel in action here as it liberates her. This shows that the gospel is also for the oppressed, Those who may be socioeconomically oppressed or racially oppressed or spiritually or culturally or in some sort of systemic bondage where the gospel interacts, it begins to challenge and change things. Amen? Yeah. Are y'all tracking with this? Yeah? Like, man, this is important, right? That this is not just a personal faith, but it impacts the people around us. We see Lydia baptized in her household. And the last one, we'll see this guy that we're going to study in a second baptize his household. But in this one, we see it also unraveling the evil in the world around us. The gospel is a very external gospel in a lot of ways. And we see it changing things, so much so that it landed Silas and Paul in prison. It changes the economic culture. As they were using unjust means to get their gains, the gospel came in and destroyed that. 
And that frustrated them, and they threw Paul in prison. It isn't enough just to be an individualist. The gospel needs to be dynamic enough to change the things around us as well. We'll hit on that again in a brief second. Our last hero is another unnamed person, like the slave girl. It's the Philippian jailer. So let's finish out the story. Starting in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. So, what do we see about this? Well, one, this is a man, which shows even men can be saved. (laughs) Only one of them, right? But hey, right? This guy is neither rich nor poor, right? He's kind of middle class. We know that because uh, only former Roman soldiers got positions like this in that culture. And so, here he is with this position. He used to be a soldier, and now he's just a hardworking, kind of a a blue-collar guy in a lot of ways. He's just a a normal guy getting paid decently, making a living to support his family. And so, we see him as actually kind of the opposite of those other two extremes as well. If Lydia is interested and very religious, and if the slave girl is irreligious, she's anti-religious, she's uh, demonic, she's against the gospel, she's even hostile to the gospel in some ways, this man is just kind of apathetic. He's neither really seeking God, nor is he like hostile toward God. He's just kind of in the middle there. He's not fighting, he's just living. We actually see his apathy even in the way that he treated Paul. For Paul uh, was just beaten to a, a pulp in a lot of ways. And then instead of doing his job as a jailer, which was to clean his wounds, he just threw him in the stocks. But then after he got converted, then he started cleaning his wounds and doing his job like he was supposed to. And so we literally see this apathy kind of reigning in this man's life holistically. He's just getting by in a lot of ways. Uh, We see that he doesn't really care about God, right? There's no uh, mention of his religious background. He's just a normal guy. And so how does the gospel come to him? Well, here's the thing with him, right? A rational conversation with God wouldn't have been helpful because he wasn't looking for God in the first place. And so you can intellectually stimulate, you can use apologetics all day, but if he doesn't really care, what good is that? Nor would a transcendent experience, a very emotional experience like what happened with the girl, likely have reached him. For he's the guy that's in worship and he sees you like, I love Jesus. And he's like, that's cool, I guess. Right? And he's just chilling. He's not moved by that emotionally. He's just a, practically he's a former soldier at that. Just very, very practical, right? And so uh, this is why in a lot of ways, apathy is the worst sort of condition to find yourself in. For even if you are rude to God, even if you are cussing God out, that is better than not thinking about God at all. For at least in that one, you're seeking. 
At least in that one you're trying to figure out. But in this state of apathy, really, it's hard to reach people who are like that. It's hard to help them see how the gospel can interact with everyone. And this is kind of this guy in a lot of ways. In fact, we get more text about how long it kind of took even for his conversion to happen. And so this is a very, very practical guy. And so what does he need? He needs to see the gospel in action and how it can work for him practically. He has a practical conversion in a lot of ways. Why do I say that? Why is he a practical guy? Well, we see that even in the fact that he was going to kill himself. Why? Why would he do that? Well, if you were a prisoner and you escaped prison, then the people that came in would kill the prison guard or the jailer. And so as all the doors open and the chains and the shackles fell off, he assumed everybody's out of here. That means my life is going to be gone. So rather than waiting or being tortured to death, I'm just going to kill myself. He is a very, very practical man in a lot of ways. But what happens? How does he begin to change? Well, we see a couple of things happening. Firstly, this guy doesn't care. But then all of a sudden, he hears these men singing and praying and worshiping God at midnight after they had just been beaten like crazy, right? Like this had to at least stir this man's curiosity a little bit, right? Like no matter how apathetic or hardened you are, this should have piqued his interest in some ways, which total side note, okay? Uh, 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 Let's go over here real quick. Sermon's over there, okay? (laughs) Friends, maybe this is why God is allowing you to suffer, Maybe your suffering is meant to be a witness to somebody else about the goodness of God. For when we suffer and when we can still in our suffering be singing out to how good our God is, that is a witness to the world around us. And so Paul, rather than being like, come on, God, I was doing your work, right? Like, how come I'm in jail and I'm sitting here trying to preach the gospel? He was still worshiping God, knowing that God is a sovereign God whose hand is in control of all of our situations. And he was praising nonetheless. And this man began to hear that. And you know that he was like, man, what's happening? In fact, the whole reason he knew how to ask about who the Lord was was probably because of these hymns right here. He's singing out to God, right? I mean, this may be one of the greatest testimonies there is is your perseverance and your lifting up the name of God even amongst your hard conditions. This is what happened in here. The jail cells opened, and if they would have escaped, it would have been at the cost of the jailer's life. But they repaid evil, which had been done to them, with good, which is another practical example of the gospel. They were living out the way that our Lord would act, and the jailer has probably never seen anything like this. This practical man, this former soldier, this man of action, probably says, you have something that I don't have. And the gospel became really practical. Like, what do you have that I don't have? What is happy in your life that you are still worshiping in these ways? And so, see, Lydia, she got words right? The slave girl, she got emotions or depth or heart, but this man, he got actions. What he's probably even asking in a lot of ways is, hey, why didn't you gain your freedom at the expense of my death? And we know the answer to that, friends, don't we? We already have freedom at the expense of somebody else's death. You see, Jesus is a lot like the jailer in some ways, is he not? We were enchained and in bondage to our sin, and yet here comes the jailer, right? The man who could justly punish us or judge us for our sin, and yet he actually risked his life. He laid down his life. He sacrificed his life that you may go free. Paul and Silas didn't need the freedom that was expressed because they already had their freedom from somebody who already laid down on the sword for them. And so rather than allowing this man to die at their expense, they stayed in so that this man 
man may stay alive. That was a wild, a practical explanation of the gospel. They didn't need their freedom. They already had it, though they were in chains. And so this man sees this, right? And he's probably impacted by this like crazy. He sees the care for his life. Why wouldn't you trade your life in for mine? Because they already had life. And he says, what must I do to be saved, right? How do I get that? is what he's asking. Like, what do you have, he says, and it is a wild expression of the gospel. And this man has a conversion. He believes. He and those who believed in his household, you even see that phrase, not everyone did in this household, but, but, but many did. It says there at the verse 34. And so we see this conversion, right? Okay, so what do our unsung heroes tell us then? Well, they tell us a couple of things. One, they show us that the gospel is for everyone. There is no type for the gospel. In these people, uh, what we see is the beginning of the makeup of this diverse, beautiful Philippian church. For you have a Middle Eastern woman, Lydia, you have a European man, the Roman, and you have a slave girl, which means she could have been from anywhere in that time. We don't even know, but these are the people that Luke wants to highlight is coming into the Philippian church. You have a, a, a racial or ethnic diversity. You have the rich and the blue collar and the poor. You have socioeconomic diversity. You have the young and the old. There is no culture, friends, that the gospel is native to. You following that? There's no culture that the gospel is native to. In fact, this is the only major religion in the world that has never been owned by a majority culture. In fact, if we are so Western where we forget the reality of that, there are currently more African and Chinese Christians than there are all, all of North America and Western Europe combined. Yeah? Like, like, man, the gospel started in the Middle East, and then it spread into Africa and Europe, and then it went to Latin America, and then the, 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 the West, North America, and then went back into the eastern part of the world, and it's going back into the Middle East right now. And the gospel has always been expanding and growing and entering into different cultures. Why? Because the gospel is the only religion that's not really a religion. It's a relationship with the God who created every single one of those humans. And so it can interact with every single one of those humans for the gospel in and of itself is diverse. It is an expression of our God and who he is. For our God is intellectual. He is emotional. He is practical. Our God can interact with all different cultures and people groups and kinds because the gospel is diverse in and of itself. And that is what uh, uh, Luke is trying to show us here in the building up of the Philippian church. It's all over the place, right? It's dynamic. The gospel transcends culture, friends. The gospel transcends culture. It transcends uh, gender, male, female. It it gives liberty to the oppressed. It it actually acts out in all of these different ways. It's not just for the immoral. It's for the religious as well. It's not just for uh, the people that are religiously indifferent, like like the Philippian jailer. It's for everyone. It's not just for cowards or, or prideful people who need to be broken down to their pride. It's not just for suburban moms or hood dudes. Man, Aggies and Longhorns, even Aggies can get saved, right? <laughs> like the gospel is for everyone, y'all. And that's what these heroes are telling us. You tracking with that, right? What, is the, what are we seeing? That the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. It's for everyone, right? And so we can be tempted to say, oh, I'm just not the religious type. And try to escape our obligation to worship God by saying, oh, that's not just not me. No, no, no. The gospel interacts with everyone. It is you. It may not be the way you've seen it expressed, 
But God wants to come down and interact with you in this intimate way that will be an expression of who he is in and through you. The gospel is for all of us, and it's asking all of us to respond. In fact, it's necessitating that all of us respond to it. We cannot escape our responsibility to respond and consider the obligation to know God. It's for everyone, whether you are religious or or you're anti-religious or you don't care at all. The gospel is for all of us. I mean, friends, can I be honest? This is probably the reason why I love our church right? We see the, the young and the old, the, the rich and the poor, the, the black, white, Latino, Asian, right? We even have people who like country music in this joint. We have all over the place, right? In fact, can I get real here for a second? Yeah, uh-oh, for real. I might get in trouble for this. Don't listen, Paul. He's an elder, all right? I'm going I'm to stand over here on this one, all right? Hey, listen, the thing that is dividing our country the most right now, politics, hello, right? Here's my guess. I'm being dead serious about this. My guess would be is that our church is about 33% Republican, about 33% Democrats, and about 33% moderate or independent types. I know that because I meet with a ton of people. And whenever I meet with more than one person at the same time, there is always a difference on the political spectrum. But the very thing that's dividing our nation and creating hostility in our nation is not dividing us as a church, for we are coming together underneath a greater banner than this uh, a political freedom in some ways. For we know that our true freedom comes in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's the banner that we find ourselves up under. And so we worship Democrats, you all know this, with some Republicans in here. Republicans, you didn't know there are people that are not voting for Ted Cruz this time, right? We are all over the place in here, and that is beautiful, friends, for there is something greater. That's what Luke is trying to show us in the book of Acts. The kingdom of God will be made up of every tongue, tribe, nation, and culture, and Luke is trying to show us, hey, look, every tongue, tribe, nation, and culture, every sort of people, no matter where they are, they are finding their love for this Savior, and they are gathering together as the church. And do you know why that is a beautiful thing? Why this is their unsung heroes, and we need to fight for this, for this sort of diversity, even in our own church, because that is a witness to the world around us. As everybody else is dividing politically, we are uniting. <laughs> I've had so many conversations, things I'm learning, things I didn't know. Because look, at the end of the day, you're my brother. I love you, even if we think different. I look at our staff team and our elder team. I know we have somebody that's far right, that's kind of moderate right, that's like right in the middle, that's like moderate left, and that's far left. Y'all are like, what are you? Don't worry about it, all right? <laughs> but I ain't one of the extremes, just so that rumors don't start, all right? So, all right? You see, the gospel is bigger than a, a party or a class or, or money. We can unify under what actually matters. How exciting is this, friends? This is what the kingdom is supposed to look like. Where else do you get this sort of unity? Why is that important? Why is that happening? Because the gospel is not set for a type of people. It is for everyone. It is for you. The gospel is for you, friends. And so this is what we are seeing here. What's the second thing they're showing us? Well, they're showing us the forming of the church. This is what Luke is writing in. The church was being formed by such a variety of people because this is what the gospel does, as we just mentioned. Their diversity is a witness to the power of the gospel that can unite all sorts of different people together. That's what these heroes were showing us. The gospel is cross-cultural. It's, it's cross-everything, right? It transcends everything. Is it that dynamic in your life? Is it that dynamic in your life? Does the gospel cross over your political thinking? Does it cross over your economic thinking? 
Does it cross over your racial background or how you grew up or the type of music you love or the party you're affiliated with? Does it cross over everything? Is it that dynamic? That's what this story is showing us. Who does the gospel interact with? Everyone. And how does the church form? By bringing everyone who has been impacted by the gospel together to help them see this gospel truth and to be a witness to the world around us. And so these people were heroes because that's what they were doing. And in that, they began to then show how the gospel interacted with everyone for their households got saved. Or in the slave girl's instance, she began to crush the oppression for the gospel is not just for uh, the salvation of household, but it begins to break up the, the evil that has been created. It reverses the that it begins to bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven for the gospel is dynamic, friends. This is what the scriptures are showing us. They allowed the gospel to impact them and in that they began to form the church and in that there was this revolutionary thing happening where Christianity was exploding for people saw this and said, how is this happening, right? What must I do to be saved? How do I enter into this? I mean, if you read the book of Philippians in this context, Look at the diversity, the beauty, the intimacy this church is experiencing because the gospel does truly interact. That's what these people are showing us, that we can be a church that's even like that. And so I pray that we would have more Lydia's in here who are rich and who are strong so they could buy us a church building. <laughs> Ooh, I'm just kidding, right? I pray we'd have more people who have been delivered from some sort of oppression who have grew up in poverty, who may still be in that right now, who may be hurt in a lot of ways, who may be fearful to come in here because they don't know if the church is going to judge them or condemn them as well. Look, we ain't. We're going to point you to Jesus, the one who doesn't condemn you, and lifts you up and liberates you to be who he has created you to be. I pray we would see more and more of that. I pray we would see more middle class, hardworking people, right? More black and, and Asian and Latino, right? We need more white people. We got enough of y'all. I'm, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding, all right? Jokes Nick could never say. You're, you're fired in this joint, all right? Hey, we need more people that interact with the gospel in an intellectual way right, who have this intellectual stimulus for the gospel. We need more a transcendent experience of God, this emotional depth with God that maybe even makes us a little bit weird in times because we're like, why is the dude dancing on the floor right there? We're like, I don't know. He's just having an experience, right? We need that as the diversity of the gospel begins to expand into all areas. We need more practical examples of the gospel like the jailer. We need more diversity because in that there's this beautiful church this gospel shows us how it interacts with all of us. Praise God. It interacts with you. It interacts with me. The gospel is dynamic, friends. The gospel is beautiful. Is Jesus that dynamic in your life? And have you brought this beautiful gospel into the diverse world around you? The people were like, ah, oh, that's just not for me. Can you show them? No, no, no. It actually is. The people who need the emotional, we say, yeah, it's there. This God, this Jesus, see, he's the expression of all of those things. He wants to interact with all of you. We see that. The richest man ever became poor and then became a middle-class carpenter so that he can interact with all of us on a socioeconomic level. 
the transcendent God who knew all things, the most intellectual man ever came down to earth and was filled with all these emotions as he wept and as he bled, sweat blood because of all of these emotions he was experiencing. He had all of it. Why? So that he can interact with all of us. Our God became all of those things that we just saw that all of us may understand. We have a high priest that sympathizes with us. He loves us. He wants to bring us into the family. And so the gospel is powerful enough to save a slave girl. It is beautiful enough for Lydia. It is practical enough for the jailer. Jesus is whatever they needed, and Jesus wants to be whatever you need to, friends. He's ready. If you welcomed him in like that, and if you have welcomed him in, will we continue to fight for that level of diversity? Would we be a church that is forming under the heroic nature of the gospel that brings all different tongue, tribes, nations, and cultures together? For we gets to bring in to the family of God and participate in the story of God and be unsung heroes just by coming in and welcoming others in. For God made you different. And he wants to express the fullness of who he is through you, just as he did through this story. The gospel is dynamic, friends. Would we forever be that and fight for that as a church? Amen? Hey, I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel, how it interacts with me, a broken, sinful, messed up, hostile and apathetic, hostile and apathetic, and then you brought me in. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that it went into the inner city and found me. Thank you that it went into the suburbs and found some of us. Thank you that it went into the country and found some of us. Thank you that it is overseas. It didn't start here. It started over there and it's still overseas and is finding some of us. Thank you that the gospel is dynamic. You are good. You are good. Would we continue to grow in that dynamic, diverse nature of the gospel? Would you form our church to look like the Philippian church and to look like your kingdom where every tongue, tribe, nation, and culture is understanding you and loving you? Would we be impacted by the gospel, see how it interacts with us? Then will we take that gospel and go out into the world around us? That people would know there is a God who loves them, who wants to be intimate with them, who wants to interact with them in their own ways. Would you help us meet you, Jesus? We love you, God. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen.